The Kill Coin Conversation goes in a little bit of a different direction. We're not talking sports, but we're checking in with somebody I first met about five years ago and heard of about 40 years ago when I was in grade school. The Iran hostage crisis played out, and in St. Louis, it got a ton of coverage because of the local Marine, Rocky Sickman, who was among those taken hostage at the American Embassy in Tehran. And for 444 days, Rocky Sickman was a hostage. And there were the TV coverage here where the yellow ribbons and stories back near his hometown of Washington, Missouri. He was actually from a smaller town outside of Washington, Mo. But when we met five years ago, I was taken by his ability to share his story in great detail and always sort of thought, man, if, if any of us had to go through that, you know, an embassy overrun, there's video and pictures out there, uh, the images, more still photos, I guess, than video, but just the images of people literally climbing over the walls of the embassy. And here is this 22-year-old Marine from Missouri who had been in the Marines but had just been in Iran, I think, for a couple of weeks. And this plays out. They become hostages and they're blindfolded. Basically, for a year plus, you're blindfolded. That's how you exist daily. And to be able to talk about it and not, you know, almost have a PTSD reaction every time you share your story, but... He tells the uh, the meeting that he had with a therapist who said, listen, either you talk about it or you tuck it away. And then when you tuck it away, it really will haunt you. So Rocky Sickman is our guest on the Killcoin Conversation. And I want to talk to people who understand you know, the world conflict better than any of us. And I've always wondered about the embassies. How are they safe around the globe when we have an embassy somewhere where it's really... Hostile territory. Obviously, we saw the tragedy that took place in Benghazi uh, at the Libyan embassy for the U.S. So there are you know horrible examples. But Rocky Sickman uh, on Veterans Day is when we taped the segment. Rather fitting. He's worked for many years with Anheuser Busch in in sort of their military sales, but since then has branched off to Folds of Honor, which is a great organization helping the kids of fallen soldiers and making sure they get scholarships to go to college and continuing their education. Great program. Folds of Honor. That's what Rocky Sickman is working on these days. Previously, Anheuser-Busch. Great story how his wife of 40-plus years was his girlfriend when he went to Iran, and he came back, hadn't talked to her, I mean, obviously, uh, having been hostage, but hadn't seen her. And she waited for him, and they got married. The only thing she said was, you got to pick. You're either going to be in the military overseas or we're getting married. Uh, And he made a great choice. So he's raised his family here in the St. Louis area. Rocky Sickman, our guest on the Kilcoin Conversation, presented as always by Triad Bank, Marie Davila, Senior Living, B&G Tuck Pointing. You can reach them at 363-0525 and also Appliance Discounters. Here's my visit with... Rocky Sickman on Veterans Day. Yeah, for me, uh, Martin, Veterans Day is, uh, you know, looking back on my family, my father served in World War II, my brother was in Vietnam. And of course, I wanted to serve my country because my parents taught me three things, love of family, love of faith and love of country. 
And so I went into the Marine Corps and went into this uh, episode of the, the Iran hostage crisis and then found out that eight individuals uh, lost their life uh, in an attempted rescue operation. So I have never forgotten those eight individuals. And obviously, when I came home, uh, my good girlfriend at the time, now my wonderful wife of 40 years, uh, she told me the story. And it's one of those things, Martin, I, every morning I wake up, I think of those individuals and their families. Um, and you know, right now, less than 1% of our population is providing us the freedom that we all enjoy each and every day. And so, you know, November 4th, uh, 42 years ago, seven days ago, uh, 42 years ago, they burnt our American flag in front of our American embassy. And so it hurt. And, you know, when you live here in our country, you don't see too many people that are, you know, leaving our country to go to another country. It seems like everybody's dying to try to get to our country. And so we have a great place to live and the veterans are uh, to be thanked and along with the families. And for you, you've shared your story over the years. And I've thought about this. But it's probably more what therapeutic, like if you never talk about it, it maybe haunts you even more. Is that accurate? And no, you're absolutely right. I can remember uh, coming home, uh, the Marines, we were all so young, 23 years of age, Martin, to go through 444 days of captivity. Um, it was pretty uh, challenging and we had a psychiatrist sit down and said, you know, there's going to be two ways that you're going to deal with this. One way you're going to keep it inside and eventually something's going to break. Or the other is you're going to uh, learn to talk about it and use it as a stepping stone to make it through life. And I tell you, that's uh, for me, um, obviously coming home um, and working for CBS and then for Budweiser for 34 years. Now I work for an organization called Folds of Honor, which provides scholarships to families of fallen and disabled. So it's going back to those eight guys. It's uh, one of those things that's very therapeutic for me to, you know, work uh, with these families and, and also tell the story of how these 90 some guys had the guts to try to come over to regain my freedom, uh, what that American flag represents. So it's my responsibility until hopefully I die that uh, I will continue to tell that story and remind people that freedom is not free. How vivid are the memories of that day, November 4th, 1979? It remind maybe even the younger folks that haven't heard the entire story. How did that all unfold that day? Yeah, I had, uh, you know, the Iran hostage crisis really started, um, you know, when you speak to the Islamic Republic of Iran, they'll tell you it started back in 1950 when we um, basically put into power the Shah of Iran. And of course, the Shah in 1979... Uh, fled the country in January, uh, and he went into exile. Um, I go to MSG, I get to Marine Security Guard duty, and I get to Iran October 7th. And just weeks later, the Shah of Iran is admitted into the United States for medical treatment. And it's interesting, Martin, that uh, it's documented that President Carter, um, in the meeting when they asked President Carter that they needed to bring the Shah in, President Carter, um, you know, basically asked him, what are you going to say when the Islamic Republic of Iran takes our people hostage? Then what are you going to say? And so when he said that, little did he realize two weeks later is exactly what happened. The Shah was allowed into the United States. There were demonstrations daily at the American embassy up to November 4th. I was walking into the motor pole gate that morning um, to go into town, uh, getting an Iranian driver. And all of a sudden, my walkie-talkie had recall, recall. And I turned to look at the front gate, Martin, and I, I will never forget, I will tell every American uh, that 
that morning, there was no security at the American embassy. Those people were coming over the wall. I mean, by hundreds and, and thousands. And they broke the, the, uh, the chain. They all basically came in. I ran uh, back to the chancery. Billy Gallegos was closing the four-inch steel door. He's, I squeezed him. We secured it. And uh, obviously, the rest, uh, four hours later, uh, seven Marines uh, held that American embassy off for four hours. Four hours, Martin, waiting for the host government of the Islamic Republic of Iran to come to provide us protection. I mean, it is against uh, international law to attack an, uh, in the American embassy, any embassy. And uh, obviously, the Islamic Republic of Iran never showed uh, President Carter as they start bringing Americans that did not make it into the chancery that morning. They brought them to the other uh, four-inch steel door. Um, and Martin, I can tell you that that morning, how they got into the American embassy, they used Iranian women in the basement as they broke through the bars. They bring four Iranian women in black shadows, using them as shields. And behind them were the Iranian men. We popped your gas, went up to the very top. And that's, that's when the Iranians start bringing people that they had taken, putting weapons to their head and demanding that we open a door or else they were going to kill them. That's when President Carter said, give yourself up and uh, we'll get this resolved with diplomacy. And that obviously was the start of 444 days um, where, you know, the Americans restrict their freedom, their dignity, and their pride. Isn't every embassy, and I've wondered about this, of course, we had the tragedy of Benghazi, but is every embassy around the globe somewhat dependent on the host country to, like, play ball? And Because we're in some really nasty places, aren't we, where I've always wondered, it, it seems like it's still a dicey operation. No, you're absolutely right. Every American embassy, just as the Americans that uh, embassies that are in Washington, D.C., if you've ever traveled to D.C. and you go through embassy role, those are protected, the outside perimeter by the host government, which is the United States of America. When you go to G Germany, the Germans are protecting the American embassy. When you're in Iran, the Iranians are supposed to be protecting. I hate to say it, up to the point of November 4th, as I would walk from the, the Marine House to the back of the embassy, um, our Marine House was on the other side of the street behind the embassy. In the morning, Martin, I would walk to work and the guard would pull his pistol out, out of the holster. And he would actually point it at me and act like he was going to shoot me. At night, hours later, this same guard would come run, running up to me and say, can you help me get visa? I need visa for my family and I. So one minute they're your friend, next, next minute they're your enemy. But yes, it's uh, very dicey. Uh, depending on what country that you're in. But 1979, we, we did not have the reactionary forces like what we do now. A lot of things uh, were created. CENTCOM was created to make sure that never again was there any uh, you know, hostage crisis, or if there were, they were going to have contingencies in place to help provide uh, protection. And the moment it happens, you realize that, that you guys are hostages. Did you think, all right, this is going to be a day or a week and then the Americans will come storming through the door? No, absolutely. Because it just so happened, I was a fleet Marine. I was in the Mediterranean in January of 1979 when the American embassy evacuated 20,000 Americans. There were 20,000 Americans in Iran. It was a beautiful country, very westernized. And all of a sudden when the Shah fled and Ayatollah Khomeini came in, it really, uh, really got rough. 
And, but I can tell you that that January, we were locked and loaded on board of CH-53s to go in and help provide protection. So as I sat that first month, Martin, I can tell you, I, in that corner of that room, day one, at night, they would put you on the floor and tie your wrist to your ankles. But that first 30 days, your arms are tied to the arms of the chair and your feet were tied to the feet of the chair. And the first day you're sitting there thinking, you know what, the Marines are coming. I know they're out there because I was just out there waiting. And you're sitting there thinking, Martin, through the broken windows, you could hear the city of Tehran start in the morning and the traffic would peak. And you'd hear the demonstrators demonstrating, chanting death to America. And all of a sudden the city would go to bed and the next day would come. And you're sitting there thinking, you know what? It's 1979. The Vietnam War had just ended in 75 and nobody cared about the Vietnam veteran. They, they were spent on when they came home. They were ridiculed. My, my brother was serving in Vietnam. He couldn't get home fast enough to take his uniform off because they didn't want to be seen with it. And so here I am thinking, if nobody cared about them, who's going to care about 65 Americans in that country? So, yes, I, we thought, I thought, and again, my story is one of many uh, 65 stories that were there. And I thought that we were definitely forgotten. And of those 65, would there be any interaction? I mean, I wonder, there's so many things going on where there's, you know, you're mentally afraid you're going to die, but then just the lack of actual socialization too, right? I mean, did you have any interaction? Uh, well, I had interaction the first 30 days. You were not allowed to speak to any of the other hostages. The only person you spoke to was in your interrogations. And your interrogations, they wanted to break you. They wanted you to make derogatory statements. They wanted you to open safes. They wanted you to make confessions and this and that. I spent my first Thanksgiving, obviously, I, I did not make any confessions, never wrote any letters. Um, that first Thanksgiving, I can tell you, very lonely because I could sit there as we get ready for Thanksgiving, Martin. I'm sitting there in, a, in that, that shithole, excuse my language, but I'm sitting there thinking, I know what my family are doing back home. My mother's fixing her turkey. She's making homemade bread, making rolls. And little did I know that she was not only making food for herself and our family, she was making it for the media. I didn't know all this. So I spent my first Thanksgiving, my first Christmas, and it was New Year's. And in January of 1980, they put us into a room, myself and two other people, a room that I would spend for the next 400 days, not that specific room, but they blocked us in a room for the next 400 days, Martin, 400 days. And so when people say, well, you didn't really have it too bad, you know, that just blows me away when, if people say, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, psychologically and mentally, how do you tie yourself to a chair for 400 or 30 days and then lock yourself in a room for the next 400 days? We went outside seven times. So in that room, I had Billy Gallegos, the, another Marine, and Jerry Plotkin, the only civilian uh, that was there. He was in the wrong place, wrong time. And so in that room, thank goodness we had each other, but there were, because of uh, a person that um, broke during interrogations, he put seven people in solitary confinement for 444 days um, because of his confession. But yeah, it was, you know, you definitely, you lost hope uh, at times, you, thinking that uh, nothing's going to happen. And why would the American government do anything? Because they wanted the Shaw back and there was no way he was going to come back. Do you assume at some point we're going to die, all of us? I mean, is that hard to avoid that thought? 
you know, that was morning, noon, and night. Uh, I can tell you that for the first 30 days, I didn't eat much uh, because how do you go and eat at a smorgasbord when you got a gun to your head? Um, I didn't take a shower, but the first two months into the whole ordeal, thank goodness the Marine Corps taught me how to take a bird bath. And that's, uh, I mean, that's with a bar of soap. You clean the bar of soap first, and that bar of soap became your toothpaste and your finger was your toothbrush. Then you would strip down and, and take a bath in that sink, and then you would wash your pants or wear your underwear in your pants. And so it was just like, you know, each day, you didn't know if you were going to live or die. And it was not until April 1980, April 25th, when all of a sudden they moved us from the chantry. And again, this night, and I can tell you, being held hostage was like a traumatic situation each day. I don't know if you've ever or your listeners have ever been through a traumatic situation. Being held hostage was traumatic, but each day was a traumatic change, a different situation. But the night uh, of April 25th, they finally, uh, they ran into our room that night. And whenever that door opened, Martin, you jumped because you didn't know if they were going to come in and start shooting or what. And the night of April 25th, they came running into our room, handcuffed my left hand to Jerry Plotkin's right hand, handcuffed my right hand to Billy Gallegos's left hand. They blindfold us. They take us from the room, which we were locked in. They go to the restroom, Martin. You could not go to the restroom when you wanted to. You could not get a glass of water when you wanted to. You, you had to wait till they you know, basically took you. And so that night they took us from the room, took us through the basement, out through the back into an embassy vehicle. They put us in the back seat. Jerry Plotkin was handcuffed to the left side of the vehicle. Billy Gallegos was handcuffed to the right side. We were all handcuffed to each other, blindfolded, handcuffed. They take a picture from the passenger side. I mean, I'll never forget it. And all of a sudden, they put a blanket over top of us. And the reason why they did that, Martin, is because they had found the charred bodies, eight charred bodies of American commandos that had uh, perished in the desert. Iran had no idea that there was a command force coming in to try to rescue the hostages they made it to the middle of the country of Iran in the desert and a CH-53 helicopter and a C-130 collided, killing those eight. And so they aborted the rescue operation. But the Islamic Republic of Iran thought that they were still coming to get us. So they moved us. When they took that picture of us blindfolded handcuffed, they put a blanket over top of us. We both, we all three said at the same time, this isn't good. And I mean, it was, it was like that daily. You just... You analyzed everything, and then they moved us. We didn't know it, that they were moving us away from the American embassy. By that night of April 25th, 1980, all the hostages were scattered throughout the country of Iran, um, and we didn't know what was going to happen next. You ever wonder why, and it's a terrible thought, but why they didn't kill anybody? Like, what? I wonder what they were, what were they hoping to get out of it, just to embarrass the U.S.? Um, no, no, absolutely. Uh, why they didn't kill us? Yeah, it was definitely, um, we were used as pawns to humiliate. I can tell you, Martin, in our interrogations, they told us, it is not you, the American people we hate, it's your government, but we will use you to humiliate your government. Martin, they have done it for 42 years. The Islamic Republic of Iran, they know our government changes every four to eight years. They only need to negotiate through each one and then flush them out and embarrass them. And that's what they did to President Carter. Uh, many Americans don't know that President Carter 
paid $8.3 billion to release the hostages. Iran took us, but we had to pay Iran to release the hostages. I mean, go figure that. And then Iran kills 240 Marines in Beirut. And then they create IEDs to kill our troops in Iraq. And so, so many times I wondered what would have happened had I pulled the trigger on November 4th, 1979. Would we even have this mess? But because 42 years later, here we are. And I, I, it's really, um, they used this as their pawns, their negotiators, and just elements to, to make our government look bad. And it did. It destroyed President Carter's um, administration. To pull the trigger, though, for you, that would have meant shooting an innocent woman, correct? That would oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. An innocent woman. And also because you cannot use, you can't shoot upon people if they, unless your life uh, is at risk. And that morning, they were using women to force forward. And But you know what? I wanted the Islamic Republic of Iran. I wanted those people to feel the same pain I was feeling. And I mean, I, I can tell you, Martin, it's one of those things that you sit there, uh, the what if, what would have happened? In the first 30 days, I was so upset with myself. But again, my orders were also to stand down, don't fire. I would have been the radical Marine that would have shot, you know, unarmed innocent people. Plus, who's to say the Islamic Republic of Iran would have used those individuals and paraded them around in the uh, front of the American embassy that the Marines were shooting unarmed innocent women, not knowing that they were using women as shields. And so you got to give them credit. They know how to manipulate it. And uh, it, it's just one of those things you, you wonder, the what if. So what were the, the scariest days when they would line you up and pretend that they were going to shoot everybody? You know, the scary days, uh, Martin, was uh, the first day when they took us. And, I mean, there's pictures out there. And you can see the pictures of us blindfolded uh, the morning of November 4th. Uh, and those blindfolds with our arms being tied, you know, for the next 30 days. I mean, those were scary days. You didn't know if you were going to freaking live or die morning, noon, and night. And then spending your, your first Thanksgiving, your first Christmas, your first New Year's, and then being locked in a room where we were locked in a room for the next 400 days. I mean, had somebody told me that, Rocky, you're going to start being held hostage on November 4th, 1979, and you're not going to be released till January 20th, 1981, I would have said, you're, you're out of your mind. There's no freaking way. But you know what? You did. But each day was, uh, was bad. I mean, the interrogations, um, the driving throughout the country of Iran, blindfolded, handcuffed, um, coming back, uh, being put into Evin prison, where you heard people being tortured, women and, uh, and men. Um, and then, of course, the second Thanksgiving, the second Christmas, you got to the point, Martin, you really didn't care anymore. And you would start putting your weapon in the mouth and saying, pull the trigger. You just, you didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and you couldn't, and there were individuals that did try to commit suicide while they were over there. Um, I didn't see them because I was in a room with two other people for 444 days. It wasn't until January 20th of 1981, Martin, that uh, they moved us from our room. They took us from the room that night. I was the first one out. Instead of turning right, we turned left, walked down the hallway. I'm blindfolded. Jerry's got his arm on my shoulder. And all of a sudden, the guard turns me to the right. He opens the door. And there's a cold uh, breeze flying through the door. And I walk out and I walk into something I hadn't felt for two years, snow. 
and they had taken our shoes from us back in March of 1980. And I'm walking through snow through the toes and it's wet, but it feels so cold, but it feels so great. And the snow is hitting me in the face as I'm walking. I can remember the crunching of the snow, put us onto a vehicle, we drive off, we all of a sudden get to this destination, we turn right, and you hear a sound of a jet engine. And your heart is pounding because you had prayed for this. You had hoped, you had cried for this opportunity. And all of a sudden the vehicle stops and we're right behind the plane and the force is pushing against the airplane. And all of a sudden they tell us to unblindfold. I didn't have glasses then, didn't have hearing aids then. And I, unblind, I start to unblindfold, which you weren't ever allowed to do. If you, if you were caught on blindfolding, they pound on you. And so you start to unblindfold and here you are looking at somebody that you hadn't seen since 1979, November, when you had breakfast with them. And before you had the chance to say anything, they start plucking one by one off this vehicle and outside the vehicle, they're chanting death to America and they're spitting on us. And we're boarding the back of an airplane. We didn't realize that it was an Algerian airplane at the time. And they're telling us to please board very quickly. We must leave. That plane sat there for three days waiting for us to be released. As I walk up to gangplank, uh, I see this young lady. I hadn't seen a woman in 444 days. And she takes me and she goes, we must leave very quickly. Come with me. And so she puts me down. And all of a sudden, one after another, start boarding the airplane. And Martin, they start closing the door and saying, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Where's Gene? Where's Kurt? Where's Debbie? Where's Judy? Where's everybody else at? They said, no, you're the last. We said, what are you talking about? There's not 65 people here. And they said, no, the others were let go a year earlier. We didn't know that other people were let go a year earlier. We didn't have any information for over a year. And so they assured us that, no, no, you're, you're the last. We must leave very quickly. We've been here for three days waiting for you. And so the pilot gets to the end of the runway. He starts accelerating and he's got the foot on the brake and all of a sudden it comes back down to a, an idle. And Martin, I mean, through all the mock firing squads, the Russian roulette, you know, I might look normal on the outside, but I'm all screwed up on the inside. I mean, the mind games that they played, just they never go away. Um, and the pilot comes on and says, they turn the runway lights off. Uh, so we have to wait till they turn the lights on. And what they were doing was nothing more than to humiliate Carter. They waited 20 minutes, Martin, until President Carter was out of office and Reagan came in just to stab him in the back. And that, that was the whole piece. The Shaw died July 27, 1980. We were let go January 20th, 1981. And it wasn't about the Shaw. It was about the humiliation factor. And I hate to say it, Martin, uh, seven days ago in Iran, they are celebrating to this day, you know, death to America. And I'm a true believer, Martin, Muslim is not born with hatred. They are taught hatred and they have taught it for 42 years. Show me one school in our country that is burning Iranian flags and chanting death to Iran. In that country, out of eight, 1,200 cities, 800 cities is chanting this. And so we wonder why people can walk up to a, a, a building and pull a cord and detonate themselves and kill all these people. Well, if you've been taught that, that's what you're going to do. So it, it hurts that that teaching continues to this day. When you see other military endeavors, like Afghanistan was the biggest one of late play out, and it's probably not fair to lump all these countries together, but is there, are there parts of the world where 
they just don't get us and we don't get them. And there's just, there's nothing we can do about it. Is that, is that generic? I'm not sure. You know, um, I, I can tell you Iraq, for an example, that was the first war, right? I can tell you that war, Martin, it started when I was in prison, in a Veen prison in 1980, the war with Iran and Iraq. There were dogfights. I mean, as a 23-year-old kid, I'm in this foreign country, um, and they're fighting a war. Iran knew that they could not take Saddam Hussein. There was one country that could take Saddam, and that was the United States. So what do we do? We get intelligence that Saddam Hussein has got weapons of mass destruction. We go in and we take Saddam out, and there were no weapons of mass destruction. I always say that I think somebody did a spell check error. Instead of a Q, it should have been an N, Iran. Um, but anyway, we go and we take Saddam out. Who takes over? Who's trying to take over Iraq right now? But Iran. I mean, and then, of course, you've got this war in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it's like right in the middle, you got a country, Iran. And it seems like is Iran supporting and supplying weapons and, and housing to all these, you know, our enemy. Um, I don't know. I mean, because I I've not been there since then. But to me, it uh, it was like uh, you know we fought the war for them in Iraq, and we're basically uh, giving them the country. We're trying to, and I think we're hopefully going to try to defend it more. Did Argo get it right? The movie Ben Affleck behind it. I think Clooney was part of it, and I think your son and yourself were actually on the set. Your son had a Spencer, good CBC grad, had a cameo in there, uh, and that was a fantastic movie. Probably hard for you to watch, but did they get it right? You know what? Um, you're absolutely right. It was hard for me uh, to, uh, to view it. I can tell you it was just synchronicity. My wife and I were at a wedding in Columbus, Ohio in 2011. And the father of the bride, he uh, says, Rocky, I want you to meet my sister. She's a casting director out in L.A. You never know. Someday you might be able to help your son, which he knew that Spencer was an actor, CBC and everything, and what is in college. And so I gave her my card. Three days later, Martin, she's out in L.A. emailing her girlfriend, asking her, hey, what are you working on? Girlfriend comes back and says, I'm working with Ben Affleck, George Clooney, John Goodman, and a cast of others about the Iran hostage crisis. And a girl we just met, she goes, well, I just met one of the hostages at a wedding this past weekend. And the girl, who was that? She goes, Rocky Sickman. She goes, Rocky Sickman, was he one of the Marines? And she said, yeah, he was. She said, well, his character, Sergeant Sickman, which is played by Ryan Ahern, a much better looking guy than I, thank goodness he got that good. Um, anyway, he, his character is in the movie. And so the friend that I had just given her a card, she said, what's the chance of Ben meeting Rocky? He was there for 444 days. Um, not like my colleagues, they were there for 80 days, which again, one day being held hostage is, is freaking something you'll never forget. 80 days is still a lot. And so I had no idea um, that this movie is being created. Two days later, um, Ben Affleck comes back and says, I would love to meet Rocky. Bring him out. Bring his son and we'll put him in a movie. Martin, I'm here to tell you, shit like that doesn't happen every day. So I fly Spencer overnight. I meet him the next morning in LAX. Uh, hours later, we're on the set of Argo. And we walk in. Spencer's got real long hair because it's 79. And so Ben Affleck comes running up and hugs me. He goes, Rocky, it's an honor to meet you. And you know, before I know it, they put Spencer into the set, the CIA room. He's a mail delivery guy pushing a mail cart. And I, I'm put in the back with Chris Terrio, the guy that wrote the script, and he's directing everything, telling me. And here they are focusing in on Spencer, like wondering who's this new guy. And for me, though, it was very emotional because 
My son, ever since he was six years old, wanted to be an actor. And his first movie was Argo, which is an Academy Award winning movie. And so Ben invited me back to the Canadian embassy where I got to meet uh, Ken Taylor again. It just so happened a week before I was taken hostage, Martin, um, the Charge d'Affaires, Bruce Langdon and myself beat Ken Taylor and his assistant in a tennis match right behind uh, uh, the, Ameri- uh, the ambassador's house on our compound. And we smoked him. And little did we realize that a week later, he rescued our six people. So it was great to see him again. But he's passed away since. How many of your fellow hostages, did you guys communicate over the year? Were there ever reunions? How much contact over the years did you guys have? Yeah, you know, and that's a great uh, point because now out of the 52, there are about 33 of us, you know, the Marines being the youngest ones. But I can tell you, I was in a room with Billy Gallegos and Jerry Plotkin. Jerry Plotkin was the only American civilian that was in the American embassy. He was Jewish and he was a merchant. He was caught with a quarter million dollars in cash to collect uh, a quarter million dollars of cash to basically hand off to a Korean that was walking out of the American embassy. Well, the Iranians kept uh, Jerry Plotkin, but they let the Korean go because they didn't want the, a Korean international incident. This is an American incident. And so I was in a room with Jerry Plotkin. He's passed away back in um, the latter part, 80s. And Billy and I, there's not a day that goes by that we don't you know, communicate texting. His daughter calls me Uncle Rocky. My kids call Billy Uncle Billy. It's, it's a bond that, you know, I'm here telling you a story but only Billy remembers the sounds and the smells and the stories that, you know, are, are never going to go away. And so, but I was with him uh, for 400 of those 444 days and Jerry Plankett. And so the other people I really didn't get to see. And, but we do occasionally um, get on emails and, and chat back and forth. And your wife waited for you that entire, well, soon to be wife at the time, right? When you That's got correct. Yeah. Being you get up. That's right. Being a Marine security guard, Martin, I was not allowed to be married. And Jill and I had just started dating um, in 19, early part of 1979. And I told her, I says, I get this last gig I wanted to do. And you know, growing up in Crockle, population of 50, dogs and cats included, I told her, I said, I want to see the world. And the world I saw, I went to Asia, went to Europe, and I came back and went into MSG. She was just graduating. She was 18. I was 22. And uh, she was going away uh, she got a scholarship for dancing. And so I get over there and obviously I'm taken. And you've seen the movie, Tom Hanks, uh, Castaway. He had a locket. I didn't have a locket, but I had her picture. And her picture was really embedded in my head that the first 30 days I said, I'm, I'm not going to let these people get the best of me. And if I ever make it out, I'm going to marry this girl. And so sure enough, 444 days later, I call home for the first time. And my, my father used to always mess around with my buddies growing up. And whenever my buddies, we were on a party line, Martin, out in Crackle, Missouri. Party lines, we had seven houses on our party line. And so whenever our phone would ring, different uh, tone, um, my father would pick up the phone and say, yeah, Crackle store. My buddies would hang up thinking they got a wrong number. So I called home that first time and spoke to my dad. I said, yeah, is this Crackle store? And my dad goes, no, this isn't Crackle store. And I said, hey, dad. And he knew I was messing with him. So anyway, that was my first phone call back to my mom and dad. So we start chit-chatting and uh, my dad goes, Rocky, Jill's here. And I said, she waited. And he goes, well, she wants to talk to you. I'm thinking, well, that doesn't sound too good. You know, did she get engaged or, or what? She's a beautiful girl. 
at that point in time, Martin, she, uh, she basically said, Rocky, you got to make a decision, either me or the military, but I can't do this. I waited 444 days. I don't, I, I can't do this again. I said, what about the state department? And she goes, travel overseas. I said, yeah. And she goes, no, I, I can't do it. So, and she feels bad because she understands, especially during veterans day that there are families that do, you know, sacrifice. Uh, 1% of our population is serving a war on terror right now. And their families are all going to be at home this Thanksgiving without their loved one. And so it's one of those things that she finally gave me the blessing. I became director of military sales for Budweiser. I traveled the world and she just didn't want to know where I was. Uh, she didn't want that incident to come back, but we've been married 40 wonderful years. And uh, we have three wonderful children, Martin and four grandchildren. And I always, I go back to Folds of Honor. It's an organization that provides scholarships to families of fallen and disabled. Those eight individuals, the morning of April 25th, they lost everything. They never again would they ever be able to go fishing with their son, kick a soccer ball with their daughter, uh, play lacrosse, uh, walk their, uh, go to a, a high school um, dance, uh, walk their daughter down the aisle and hold a grandchild. I've been able to do all those things. And those guys sacrificed their life for my life. And that's, you know, I can't ever forget that. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story and uh, especially with Veterans Day. And I, I wonder if there's so many, I think a lot of people pay lip service. What's the best way for American citizens to show their respect? What's the best way? There's a lot of ceremonies and stuff. And I think sometimes they're sincere, sometimes they're not. What's the best way to do it? You know what? Uh, I've got a two-year-old granddaughter, and she every time she sees an American flag, she always says "Papa" and salute, and she salutes the flag. She understands, and so just as my parents taught me the love of family, love of faith, love of country, and again being able to raise the flag and have the flag out. We had a flagpole in front of our house, um, and I used to raise that. So when people see a branch of the military. Uh, I, I do it all the time as I'm walking through an airport. They don't know who I am, but I go over and say, hey, thanks for serving our country. We need to remember that the sacrifices that our past and our current service members are, are providing is uh, the wonderful love in, of the land that we live in. Um, and we take it for granted. It's not free. And these men and women are willing to give their life to, to protect it. Rocky, great to catch up. We want everybody to check out Folds of Honor. Uh, and, and just in recent years, they've done a great job getting their name out there. And I know Schnooks would do like the Roundup and Budweiser and Dave Peacock and those folks kind of got behind it. And it's great to get the publicity that it certainly deserves. And look forward to seeing you in person, my friend. Well, thank you, sir. I mean, just real quick, Folds of Honor, 35,000 scholarships, uh, 90 cents of every dollar goes back to the recipient. 41% of those recipients are minority. Foldsofhonor.org. We always uh, like to say, Honor their uh, sacrifice, educate their legacy at Folds of Honor. So thanks again, Martin. Well, I'm never disappointed when talking to Rocky about what he lived through, uh, what he's learned about the world from that experience. And that movie Argo, if you've never seen the movie, I mean, just from a cinematic standpoint, I thought it was a great movie. Really well acted, well done. Ben Affleck, George Clooney were behind the scenes on it, producing it. They were not in it. It's an outstanding movie, and then when you find out from somebody who lived through that horrifying experience that it's pretty accurate, um, that's even more impressive. So if you've never checked out the movie Argo, 
Uh, I highly recommend it. John Goodman in a supporting actor's role, he's outstanding as well. Uh, highly, in fact, as I say that, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking that's one over the weekend I may want to go back and watch again. Really well done. So thanks to Rocky for his time. Thanks for his service. It's uh, That's sort of uh, one way to look at it as we talk about Veterans Day. When your son, your daughter, your neighbor, your friend, anybody signs up for the service, you're signed on to, to protect, and you don't know what that means. And for him, it meant going overseas and then living through this terrible experience. So you just don't know. So that's why we honor... Uh, one of the many reasons we honor our service members, uh, Veterans Day, and hopefully every day throughout the year. The Kilcoin Conversation can be found at Spotify and iTunes, also on scoopswithdannymac.com. It's presented by Triad Bank, neighborhood-friendly bank in Frontenac on Clayton Road. Get them at triadbanking.com. Also, Marie Devilla, Senior Living at the corner of Clayton and Weidman Road. Great folks have been there since 1960. Beautiful Campus in West County, the Christmas tree is going up. MarieDevilla.com is where you can take a virtual tour. Appliance discounters, they are the best in getting you the appliance quickly at a low price. They've got inventory, which means you don't have to wait months, just a couple of days. That includes GE General Electric, GE rebates available, so discounts on top of the already low prices at appliance discounters. Find out what I've been talking about for years. Low prices, great product theappliancediscounters.com don't wait months make it days get yourself a new appliance today at appliance discounters also bg tuck pointing bg tuckpointing.com the website you can see some of the work they've done around the st louis area if you've got tuck pointing or waterproofing foundation repair get a free estimate from rich galati at 363-0525 314-363-0525 is the number to call. B&G, they're the best in the bricks. I'm Martin Kilquin. We'll talk to you again soon.